It's so important to identify what's really your values and what is really important to you. Prioritize your daily action and delegate lower priority things because you can't be inspired doing low priority things. You also have more objectivity, more integrity, more walking your talk. You wake up your natural leader. Everybody has a leader inside when they start to walk congruently with what they value. There's a leader waiting inside for everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, folks. I'm Ben Morton, and a very warm welcome to episode 84 of the podcast. In this episode, we are fortunate to be joined by a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, an author, and a global educator. His name is Dr. John Demartini. Dr. Martini was selected as the top human behavior specialist of the year for 2020 by the IAOTP for his outstanding leadership and commitment to the profession. He is the founder of the global education organization, the Demartini Institute, which has over 72 courses on self-development, life mastery, and leadership in its extensive curriculum. His knowledge is the culmination of over 48 years of cross-disciplinary research. This research has led him to write in excess of 40, yes, 40 self-development books, including the bestseller, The Breakthrough Experience, and The Values Factor, which we discuss in great detail during this episode. And in this episode, we do a really deep dive into the value of core values for us as leaders and as individuals. Dr. Demartini in this episode just smashes myth after myth, which I found absolutely fascinating. And he also shares some really practical ways in which we can use our values to live a more fulfilled life and become a much more effective leader. The most interesting of these for me was his method of delegating or linking tasks to his values. And you can listen to him talking about that in the episode. And if this episode has got you interested in the value of personal values, you can download my free 12-page toolkit via the link in the show notes to help you get clear on your own core values. So, without any further delay, folks, please enjoy this fascinating conversation around core values with expert Dr. John Demartini. John, a very warm welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to have you with us. Really been looking forward to, to chatting with you today. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I was looking forward to it too. Cool. John, the first thing I wanted to ask you, um, which is really based on your book, which I've read and loved, by the way, and was just flicking through again, getting ready for our conversation today. Sort of how and when did you really discover the power of core values, which is what I believe you call the, the values factor, right, which is also the title of your book? I was 23. So this is the 44th going on 45th year I've been working with values. 23 years old when I first came across how important they were. Each individual has a unique set of priorities, set of values, things that are most to least important in life. And those priorities determine how they perceive the world, decide decisions in the world, and act in the world. Well, human behavior is based on perception, decisions, and actions. So 
if I know what the values are, I got a better idea of who this individual is and what they're going to be doing and what what you can rely on them to do. And was there a particular moment where you personally really started to, I guess, understand or get curious about personal values? What was it that um, sparked this journey for you? I think what it was is so many people, uh, if you asked them what their values were, they told me things that weren't showing up in their life. And I saw incongruencies between what they thought it should be, ought to be, supposed to be, got to be, have to be, must be from some sort of extrinsic source, mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions, mores, people around them, instead of what their life demonstrated. So all the value determinant processes that I'd seen out there somehow was missing something. It was about how you're supposed to be in society, the values you're supposed to apply, what your parents are supposed to teach you to be. Instead of what does your life demonstrate? And I watched this incongruency in many people. I mean, I asked people, how many of you want to be financially independent, for instance? Every hand goes up. Right. The foot goes up. Yeah. <laughs> they put their feet and hands in the air, you know? And I said, how many of you are financially independent? All the hands go down. I said, well, you know, what you say you want, what your actually life's demonstrating you're committed to are two different things. I want to know what your life's demonstration is showing more so than your fantasies. And I started to go off on a different journey with values than what I was seeing mainly in the marketplace. And there was value in some of the things written, but I just felt that they were overlooking the obvious. They were putting a bunch of social idealisms about how you're supposed to be instead of how you are. And I'm interested in how you are and what your life demonstrates more so than what you are supposed to be that nobody lives. It's like a moral hypocrisy. So I, I started to go down a different route with values and trying to find out what is real. You know, if I look at my life, I could say, I want to be in an international sex symbol. Man, there's no evidence of that. <laughs> <laughs> but but there is evidence for researching and teaching. You know, I've been doing it 50 years. Yeah, You can rely on me to be studying something and sharing something. That you can rely on me, but you can't rely on me to be having Hugh Hefner's mansion. That's just <laughs> not going to happen. So I can make up fantasies about my life. But I'm interested in what's real and what I'm reliable on. And whatever's highest on your value is what you're most reliable to be doing. Right. And so mine is teaching. So I, I, I got 50 years of track record on it. So I know what I'm, what's valuable to me. And I set goals that are aligned and congruent with that. And you expedite the achievement process. And you don't beat yourself up. A lot of people beat themselves up because they're expecting to live outside what they really value and wonder why they keep you know, self-defeating. Your self-worth is is directly proportioned to how congruent you are with what you value most. Yeah. So these are very important principles that people seem to overlook. Yeah. And even in the literature and the self-help movement and all that, they just seem to give you an ideal. They, they say, well, pick your values. And people just pick a bunch of artificial fantasies. I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in what does your life demonstrate? John, man, there are so many questions I want to ask you all at once, and I'm trying to work out the, the, the right order. But I guess, how do you personally actually define value? So what are we talking about here? What is a value? And I guess, what isn't a value to your mind? You know, we move a muscle to fulfill some objective and whatever it is that we want to fulfill. Fulfillment is a perception of what's empty. If we don't have money, we search for money. If we don't have relation, we search for relationship. We don't have health, we search for health. So whatever is something we want to fulfill and import into our awareness or influence is important to us. Yeah. The word important means that which we want to import into our experience. So 
Yeah, the thing that's most important, the thing that's most valuable, the thing that's bring the most fulfillment, the thing that has the most meaning, the thing that spontaneously inspires you is what I'm interested in. Right, yeah. You can't live an inspired life doing low-priority things. Yeah. So does that mean our values can be aspirational or or can they not be aspirational? I've been doing this, like I said, 44 years. I, I teach a signature program called the Breakthrough Experience. I've done it 1,148 times. Wow. I've been doing value applications and value uh, determinations and, and teachings around that for all these years, you know, 34 years on that program almost. And I'm amazed at the PS that people feed themselves. Like I say, they say they want to be financially independent, but there's no evidence. The second they get money, they buy consumables that depreciate in value. And what they're really saying in their life's demonstration is that, that I want things. Yeah. <laughs> I want to buy consumables. They go down in value. And then I keep sabotaging. I keep, I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't get ahead financially. Well, look at your values. Your hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. Tell me what you value. I'll tell you what you're going to spend your money. Hmm. And if you value consumables that depreciate and you're living vicariously through other people's brands instead of building your own brand and then buying assets that give you passive income, financial independence isn't going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's just not rocket. It's not rocket science. It's just common sense. Yeah. But you'd be surprised how many people make the statement that I want something and then their life does demonstrate something different. I had a, a lady drive me from Ojai, California, back into L.A. one time because I had a, did a program up there one night. And I, was, I had a car service, but she asked if she could drive me. I said, OK. I knew it was going to be a free consult. But <laughs> says, by the way, well, I've got you here. You know, I really am looking for my soulmate. I'm looking for my man. I'm looking for this. You know, and I said, if you were, you have it. She was just like, what? I said, the hierarchy of your values dictate your financial destiny and dictate your relationship destiny. And if you really, 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 really had a desire for a man, you'd have him. And she goes, well, wait a minute now. I really do. I said, no. Let's take a look at what you're doing. Make a list right now of everything. Let's, let's, I'll, I'll write on the piece of paper while you drive. I'm going to make a list of everything you're looking for in a man. And we made a list. There's about 26 things. And, of course, that list would really go on and on and on because there's no way she's ever going to be satisfied, as you know. She wasn't, she wasn't choosy then. Yeah. And then, then I said, all right, now, who's providing that in your life? And, and we found every individual, one or many, sometimes male, mostly males, some females, that were providing everything she was looking for in a man. And that was eye-opening to her. She goes, wow, I have a client and he pays me and I'm making a living off this client and he's a portion of my husband, isn't it? My, the man I'm looking for. I said, yep. And there's a best friend who has a, who has a boyfriend who I hang out with and I banter in the conversation with him and another piece of my boyfriend, yep. And then there's a guy over here in my workout area that we work out together, which is another thing that I wanted in relationship. I said, yeah. I said, everything you're looking for is always present. It's in a form that doesn't match your fantasy. Got you. It, but it does match your values. You're not aware of what your values are. And so we went through these 26, seven things. And she goes, my God, everything that I'm looking for is in my life, isn't it? I said, that's right. Nothing's missing. She said, well, well, can I ever get it in one man? I said, no, they don't make those. <laughs> they don't make a guy like that. You always have to get a. If you're looking for a relationship that's all positive, no negative, then you've got a fantasy. You know, you're going to get things you like and dislike in every relationship. I said, the reason why you've diversified your relationship into these people 
And even though there were 26 different things that she was looking for, there was only really about nine people in her life, about six people mainly that were in her life representing them. Yeah. I said, the reason why you've diversified it is because you've been wounded by being with one. So let's now take a look at the men you've been with that have been at least six months or longer. And she goes, yeah, yeah, we listed them. I said, what, what happened to the last one? The last one you dated in for six months or longer. Says he was really hot, but I couldn't rely on him, and he was messing around. I said, so can you see the thing you're looking for is a hot guy? Now, who's the hot guy in your life? He goes, I got him. I got a guy that sometimes I can call him up. He can take me to social functions, everything. He's hot, but he doesn't make any money. He doesn't, you know, but he's just great for a date, <laughs> you know, but not, not for anything else. I said, but you see you had a hot guy, but you can't trust him, you know, sexually. He says, yeah, I, I got wounded there. And I, I said, okay, now what's the guy before that? I said, and then I went in there and I did what I call the Demartini method and I dissolved the wound. I said, how'd that benefit you? Because mm -hmm. if, if you perceive more drawbacks and benefits, you're going to pr protect yourself from that and go get a handsome guy that you're not having to have sex with. She goes, that's exactly what I did. And I said, it's exactly right. You're avoiding something that's a wound in the past and you've diversified it to get what you want in a form that's not frightening to you. She goes, this is starting to make sense. And I said, what's the guy before that? Man, he was, a, he was wealthy, he had a lot of money, he was very driven, he was very business, very intelligent, but I never saw him. <laughs> I said, that was, that was boring, and I was losing my friends, and I was losing some of my business, waiting on this guy. I said, so can you see you now have a guy that's business savvy and everything else? It says, my client, he pays me fortune, we do this, I'm getting paid just like I had a boyfriend, but I'm not having to put up with his hours, he deals with my hours. I said, you created it the way you want in your value system. She goes, this is, this is getting kind of invigorating. I, and, I, and we went through all the men in her life, and then we went through and found out what, what was the, the wound in it and what she dissociated from and how she created a new form. And then she realized, I'm actually quite creative. I created the, the man of my dreams in a way that was unconscious. I said, that's right. Most people are unconscious of what they really value, and they have fantasies about what they value. And you think you want a soulmate over here, this one guy. But the reality is, if I brought you that today, right now, what would be your anxiety? She goes, a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And I can easily sit, tell people I want a relationship. But if it actually showed up today, I would be afraid it would affect my business. I'm afraid he wouldn't be loyal to me. I'm afraid that he you know, would be demanding. Da, 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 da. And I said, that's why you have it the way you have it. I said, so unless we clear those wounds... And make more advantage and disadvantage because you're going to, if you get more advantages and disadvantages being with one, you'll create one relationship. If you have more advantage and disadvantage being with many, you'll create a variety of people to fill in that gap. But nothing's missing in your life. And when we landed in L.A., we got into L.A. and she says, she says, I'm glad I gave you this ride. She says, I have a whole new perspective about relationships and I really don't feel desperate now. I said, well, if you're desperate, you're not realizing what's happening. By the way, if you got the one all these other friends and everything else would tend to drift away because yeah. you wouldn't have time for that. And she says, I don't want that. I said, I'm making money right now. I've got social life right now. I've got things. I get to work out when I want. I don't have to rely on a guy. I don't have to have any anxiety about him having a fling with somebody else. I've got it the way I want. I said, that's right. Your hierarchy of values is dictating your destiny. But what's happening is you, you have a bunch of social idealisms that you picked up by reading some self-help book or, or something out there that's making you think, I should have it this way and I ought to have it this way, instead of looking at what your life demonstrates. Your life demonstrates your real values. Yeah, I, I love that phrase that you use there, John, so, social idealisms, which I picked up the first time I, I read the book. I, 
I do think it's so true. And I, I see it time and time again on, on one of the leadership programs I, I run. One of the first things I often talk to people about is looking at the research by Jim Cousins and Barry Posner, who wrote the, the Leadership Challenge. And from their research, they've got this consistency around the top four things that followers look for in an admired leader. Number one, I think, in 30 odd years of their research has always been, been honesty. So we've spoken about that. Maybe later on that day or the next day in the program, we go on and start doing some work around personal values. And when I ask people to share back their values, every program, at least 90%, if not 100% of people have honesty in their list, right? Yeah. And I suddenly went, that, that's why. Partly because it's a social idealism and partly actually because I've inadvertently been priming them to put, put that in their, in their list. So can you just like tell us a little bit more, if you will, about so, social idealisms and I guess maybe how we can avoid allowing them to creep into our values list? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to address honesty too. I'd like to just shout that one too. You know, Diogenes, who is a, a real character, who's the head of the cynic philosophy movement back at the time of Socrates and Plato. He was a little bit of a dishonest guy. He was, he was caught doing some, you know, hanky spanky stuff, but he went around all over Europe uh, looking for an honest man, never found one, you know, cause everybody was claiming to be honest. And most people don't realize the difference between subjective bias and some sort of an objective truth. Right. They don't realize that most of their opinions that they think are true are really subjective biases and incomplete awarenesses. Yeah. And I'd proven that, Every single week, and I've presented the breakthrough experience, I said, come in here and let's take somebody that you resent or admire, and then I'm going to go through a series of questions and shatter the perception you have by doing nothing but holding you accountable to look carefully. And then you realize that, that you were running around with what you thought was true was actually an opinion that was distorted mm. and was biased. So actually finding somebody who's actually present with honesty is rare. It's a rare moment. Mm. So sometimes we have this social idealism is honesty. What most people realize is it's, we want you to say what allows us to fulfill our values. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Charisma wasn't anything that it was found in the person that was labeled charismatic. Charisma was what somebody perceived when that individual shared what they were sharing in a way where these people were feeling they were getting their values met. And then they labeled that person charismatic. <laughs> yeah. Let me dive in on that then, John. So that research by, by Cousins and Posner, like re really robust. I was just looking at it again now. I think they've got in excess of like 3 million responses. And people have always said when they vote on characteristics you look for in a leader, they've always said that honesty is the number one thing they want. So from your work and your experience around values, what are people really saying they, they want there then? Okay. I'm leery of that research. I think there's bias automatically in it. What I think what they're really saying is somebody who's walking their talk. Ah, uh, right. If I was to say to you that I'm going to cook and I'm going to drive a car, I'd let you down. Right. <laughs> I haven't cooked since I was 24 and haven't driven a car in 32 years. Right. If I said to you that I'm going to research and teach, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you down. Got you. Your identity, your ontological identity revolves around your highest value. And the second you set a goal that's congruent and aligned with that, you have a high probability of achieving it. Hmm. And you are now walking your talk. And people are meaning that when they say they're honest. They do what they say. That's different yeah. than really honesty because 
honesty is is another ball of wax yeah. <clears throat> because there's been no one ever found to be honest really they have yeah. moments of honesty moments of dishonesty you get in an elevator or let's say that you're you're late for a function and your wife is running behind and you're about to speak and you don't want to be late and she comes out and says how do i look <laughs> you're gonna say you look fantastic because you want to get to that darn thing you look fantastic you may be thinking something different but you're not going to say it because it's not going to be worth the delay yeah and does that make you dishonest or does that make you human <laughs> it's murky i don't want to give people a fantasy because what it does it sets up a fantasy idealism that people beat themselves up against yeah so i'm not interested in that i'm interested in is it, the more you set objectives and priorities according to what you truly value, the higher the probability of you doing what you say and achieving it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Congruency, yes. But I'm not gonna always say honesty because I think that our perceptions are subjectively biased at best. And we're, if you take a thousand people and see the same event, you're gonna see a thousand different opinions. So which one's the truth? For sure. So I, I'm, I'm leery about the idea of an objective truth out there, an honest person. I'd, I'd rather say that they're more integral and more walking of their talk because they know themselves enough to know what they're really committed to and what their core competences are and they stick to it. Yeah. And I think that's really relevant, right? Certainly here in the UK, that definition of honesty that you shared around walking your talk and being congruent, that makes more sense. I think that's why many of us have lost trust in politicians, for example, over the past 10 years, if indeed we ever had any any trust in, in politicians, right? Because well, poly, poly, politics means poly means many, and ticks mean bloodsuckers. So that's it's many bloodsuckers. You know? <laughs> I've never heard that before. I'll steal yeah. that and use it. Politics. But I really believe that identifying what you really value most gives you a competitive advantage. Mm. Because the people I've met and interacted with, and I've gotten to meet various people of all different scales of achievement, the ones that are congruent, do extraordinary things. Yeah, I, I had a conversation with a gentleman uh, yesterday who is a bodybuilder, workout specialist, trainer for all the celebrities in Hollywood. He's got a big clientele. There's probably 150 celebrities he works with. He's on a mission. His life demonstrates what he's doing. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's like every day he breathes it, does it. He lives in a gym. He does it. I mean, it's his life. And he does extremely well because of it. And you can see that. And I've met people in business. I've met people in sports. I've met people in celebrity status and movies and, you know, the, the acting world that are congruent. And I've met them that aren't. And anytime you're filling your day with things that are truly meaningful, you become achieving and philanthropic and you care about people and you want a sustainable, fair exchange with other people because you're more objective. Your objectivity is proportion to your congruency. But... When people are doing something that's not inspiring to them and they're living without meaning, they end up going into their amygdala and leading their life towards debauchery. And I've met people that have, you know, great fortunes and do really well, but they're not inspired by what they do. Or they hate what they do and they literally are debaucherous. So I'm a firm believer in, in prior to finding out what your priorities are. On my website, drdmartin.com, I have a value determination process. It's free. It's private. It's complimentary. I hope that somebody will go to that and do that. We'll share the, we'll, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes so everybody listening can take a look. It will be an eye opener for a lot of people because some people do know what they're really committed to, but a lot of people don't. Mm. I mean, I've been doing a, thousands and thousands of these things for, for 44 years. 
I've only found one completely congruent person in 44 years. Wow. One that I've done the test on. So to tell us more about that. So kind of what, is, what, what, what does that mean? <laughs> just, just trying to process what you've said there. When, when you're doing the value determination, the answers that they're providing are congruent with what their life is living. Right. There's a woman in Israel who is a leader in Israel, most congruent uh, value determination process I ever done. Right. I mean, I was, I was astonished. I said, I said, so what I'm seeing here is that you are a, you're an educating leader in education in your religious and political direction. And I said, that's what I do. This 38 years I've been doing it. I said, you're on track. This is a very, very congruent. From what I'm seeing here, this is your path. And she knew it. And she was clear. And there was no BS. It was very focused. But majority have some degrees of gradation of fantasy. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Mm. And many people compare themselves to others instead of comparing their daily actions to what they value most. And I think that that's where a lot of people run into snacks. They, they're comparing themselves to others and worrying about what people think. And anytime you look up to somebody and you think they're more intelligent, they're more achieving, they're more financially viable or wealthy, more uh, you know family st- stable, more socially connected, more physically fit or more spiritually aware, anytime you put them on a pedestal, and you compare yourself to them and minimize yourself and feel too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. I guarantee you, you just infiltrated some of their value system and clouded the clarity of your own mission. Your mission is an expression of what you value most. Guaranteed. I can relate to that so, so much. I mean, there was one period in my career when I went, went to work for one of the UK's leading retailers. And I was only there for 18 months, but I wasn't performing. I was performing way below my what I knew my potential was at the time. I kind of wasn't enjoying it, wasn't wasn't very happy. And I remember one day I went home and I said to my wife, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm handing my notice in tomorrow and I'm going to start work, working for myself. And my wife, basically her response was, at last. She said, have you not realized how miserable and unhappy you, you, you are? And I didn't really. But when I started to reflect on it and look back now, it's because my personal values were completely at odds with not the values of the organization that were written on the posters on the walls everywhere because they weren't the real values of the organization but I was in a in a place where I was constantly having to modify and regulate my my behavior and it just had such an impact and then and then the other one which was even more significant this was probably five or six years ago I was working with someone on some sort of social media marketing and she told me how she was on one of these high ticket price sort of business mentoring programs said yeah I'm on this program I'm shooting for a a, a seven figure turnover business that's my goal in three years and I got all excited or semi-excited and I grabbed hold of her goal and, and made it my goal and I spent 18 months again it's always 18 months working towards building my business towards that that revenue figure it was the worst 18 months in, in my business and not, not life, that's too extreme, but I wasn't enjoy, enjoying my work. Contrast that with a year when I was doing work that I loved and was riding my bike training to ride the Tour de France, arguably working a lot less because I was training a lot. Best year in my business. Yep, that's it. Authenticity. You know, most people can remember a moment when they were highly infatuated with somebody. Right, they see this hot dude, this hot chick. Right, that you know, man, this is this is hot, and you end up minimizing yourself to them, fearing the loss of them, 
and you stop doing what's really important to you and you start to fit into what you think is important to them for fear of loss of them because you fear the loss of the thing you seek and infatuate with and then you end up kind of walking away from your authentic self and trying to fit into their world Mm. and then what you do is you store every memory of every moment that you sacrificed who you really were for and you store those up as resentments that you later download on them when the fantasy is over which is you know weeks or months later and then you say i want my life back and then you kind of go and be yourself and then if the relationship can endure that and still love you for who you are and you can love them for who they are then it can work but the puppy love phase, that infatuation phase, you'll sacrifice what's important to you to be with them. Mm. And you don't, people don't realize that that's an extreme case of infatuation, but there's mild cases in every area of your life where you're subordinating to people around you without even realizing it and admiring them and taking in some of their values. Values go from whoever has the most power to whoever has the least power in society. So whoever has the most power, if you're, if you're a Catholic, the Pope has values that you infiltrate. Yeah. If you're Buffett and you're in finance, uh, you're interested in finance, then Buffett might have values that will influence you. So whoever you subordinate to, you will, you will inject those values and cloud the clarity of your own true hierarchy. And then you'll cloud that up and you'll, under, you'll, you'll be pursuing things that aren't really true for you and scatter yourself into a multitasking dispersion instead of a focused of what's really priority. It's so important to identify what's really your values and what is really important to you. Prioritize your daily action and delegate lower priority things. Because mm. you can't be inspired doing low priority things. That does make a difference. And, and you also have more objectivity, more integrity, more walking your talk. You wake up your natural leader. Everybody has a leader inside when they start to walk congruently with what they value. There's a leader waiting inside for everyone. Mm. I guess it's finding the cause that they're passionate to, to lead on, right? Well, actually, I'm going to address the word passion because that's such a word out there today. So let's just shatter that. I, I don't know if you've got a phone in front of you. Maybe you've got a little iPhone or something. I have, yeah. Yeah, pull up an iPhone and, and type into your iPhone passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, dash etymology, E-T-Y-M-O-L-O-G-Y, etymology. And you'll see the word passion in its etymology, where it's the root and origin of the word. It comes from pati and pasio, which means to suffer. You see it? Yeah, yeah. So most people don't even realize when they're going to find your passion, get your passion, oh, have compassion. They don't realize it means to suffer. (laughs) So I have no interest in helping people become passionate. because It means getting interested in suffering. Suffering. I mean, I'm not interested it, it, the passions were the animal behaviors of the amygdala. And the Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. And that's what the passions of the amygdala are. Immediate gratifying, you know, consumables that give you immediate gratification instead of long-term objective. So I'm not a man on, a, on passion. I'm a man on a mission. And there's a difference. A mission is something that inspires you intrinsically from within that has a long-term objective and you're willing to embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it. A passion is a immediate gratifying system that you want to avoid a pain and seek a pleasure and you want a quick fix. Yeah, I got you. That was warned against by the Stoics and warned against by even religious writers and philosophers through the ages. So I'm not a big, I'm not a promoter of the passion, even though that sells out there. Find your passion, get your passion. Most people don't even look up the word. What does it mean? Yeah. It means to suffer. 
That's why compassion means let me suffer with you. I'm going to suffer with you. Fascinating. I have no interest in that. Yeah. I'm interested in, I, I, I teach a, what I call the Demartini Method, which is a series of questions that help you see the hidden order in your apparent chaos and help you realize there's nothing there to be suffering about. There's an event in your life that you've chosen to subjectively bias and interpretate. And so you basically made it something that's terrible. And in actuality, it's got another side to it. And if you find it, it's liberating. Then there's nothing there to suffer with. So I'm not interested in doing that. I'm interested in asking quality questions that liberate people from emotional baggage so they can get on with doing something extraordinary with their life, living congruently. Mm. You have less baggage when you live by your highest value than any other state. Yeah. And we know that from from neuroscience, right? So if we are um, constantly regulating our behaviors and, and emotions, that's using up emotional energy, emotional bandwidth, which is just reducing the capacity we have to to live our highest values and, and do good good work, right? But I think there are so many cases of people going to work and actively or unconsciously regulating their, their behavior and just not realizing the impact it's having. There's a difference between governing behavior and repressing behavior. Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm with you. Big difference. Yeah. The, the, the executive center, the immediate prefrontal cortex, the frontal cortex, when it is online, when you live by your highest value and you live congruently and stick to priority, you're more resilient and adaptable, less volatile, and you have governance. And glutamate and GABA, the two stimulatory and inhibitory transmitters, calm the amygdala down from its impulses and instincts that distract it from being present and allows you to have presence mm -hmm. and mastery and highly refined skills. So that's different than repression. Repression is that when you're you're saying, okay, I'm only gonna think positive and I'm gonna repress all negativity. That's a repression, that's not governance. Yeah. And many people think that they can repress without super expressing it. Repression eventually leads to an explosive opposite. But governance calms them down from both ends. And governance gives the difference between it. As Warren Buffett says, until you can manage your emotions, don't expect to manage money. Robert Greene in his book on the 48 Laws, don't expect to lead if you can't manage your emotions. And that's been stated for centuries. So it's moderating, dampening the volatilities of the extrinsically stimulated emotions that are the passions and governing yourself with some sort of reason and some sort of real mission, not passion, but mission. If you have something that's inspiring, the guy I was talking to yesterday that's involved in the training, he's on a mission. And he is doing amazing things on the planet with what he's in his field because he's on a mission. Mm. Love it. And there was something you said earlier on that uh, linked links me to a question I wanted to ask you about, something I spotted again in the book as I was flicking back through that I think would be really interesting, but actually eye-opening for, for listeners. You, you wrote in there about linking actions and tasks that you find unfulfilling and aren't able to delegate, linking them to your highest values. I think that that's really, really powerful. Can you tell us a little, little more about that and how that works? Well, I, I tell people either go do what you love through delegating or love what you do through linking. Mm, nice. See, I, I learned when I was 27 years old after reading a book by Alec McKenzie, The Time Trap, not to do low priority things. So what I did is I, I delegated them. I hired people to do everything except the thing I love doing, which is in my case today, it's teach, research, and write. I don't have anything else on my plate. I have nothing else I need to do. <laughs> That's all I have to do. That's it. I teach, I research, I write. My teaching will show up in keynotes, webinars, presentations, workshops, 
uh, coaching, consulting, or whatever, but I'm teaching research and writing. I have nothing else to do. I don't do administrative, don't do business stuff. I don't do any of that stuff. I learned a long time ago to stick to what your core competence is. That's what's highest to my value. I've delegated the rest. If you're not delegating lower priority things, you're devaluing yourself. Mm -hmm. That's simple. So I gave that up at 27. I'm 68 almost. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's uh, 40 years of that. But until you can delegate, sometimes it may take you a, a moment to find that person to delegate. So in the meantime, so you don't drain yourself, take that job responsibility that you haven't been able to delegate yet that needs to be done and ask how specifically is doing this particular task temporarily until I find the right person to delegate it to helping me fulfill my mission. And that way you reframe it instead of it draining you, it's now inspiring you temporarily until you delegate it, but you still need to delegate it. And when I was 27, I... I found I made a list of every single thing that I did in a day over about a three-month period. Everything I, I did, a big list. And then I put a dollar value. What does it produce per hour next to it? And then I looked at it. And the most significant thing I was doing was speaking. Right. That produced the most per hour. That was the biggest leverage. And then clinical work was my second one. And then I, then I added next to that is how much meaning does this have on a 1 to 10 scale? I want to do the thing that is most inspiring and meaningful. I want to do the thing that produced the most and served the most people. So I made a list and went through there and deciphered it all there. And then I asked, what would it cost to delegate it? And then I looked at the spreads between what it produced per hour versus what it would cost to delegate per hour. And then I looked at how much time I spent on it. And then I prioritized it with all those variables. And literally in 18 months, I had one staff person myself in a 970-square-foot office. 18 months later, I had a 5,000-square-foot office with five doctors, 12 staff members, and my tenfold net income, tenfold net income. So I delegated, never went back to that. I don't, I don't do anything except teach research and write today. I'm off to recruit a few more people. Yeah. <laughs> John, probably a, a few final questions, actually, being conscious of your, of your time. To what degree do our do our values change for, throughout our life? Do, do they change? Do we have a core set that remain fundamental? What, what's your view and some of the research there? The possibility and probability of a change is, is there. Some people are pretty stable through much of their life, but most people have a change. It's either a gradual tweaking. When you're living by your highest values, you have gradual tweaks, adjusting to the changes in the world. Yeah. If you are living by lower values and fighting yourself and having a hell of a life, cataclysmic change, like hitting bottom as an alcoholic, you got to hit a cataclysmic change, a death in the family, a broken business or something happening to make a change. So you have what is called punk take cataclysmic changes or gradual changes. Those are the two approaches to value changes. Now, in my life, I look at my earliest life from age three, four to about 12, 13 Baseball was pretty high. I played ball. I had learning problems. I had uh, learning school problems, so academic wasn't part. From a nine overlap to about 13 all the way to 18, surfing became important. At age 17, 18 is when I nearly died, and that's when I met Paul Bragg, and that's when all of a sudden I realized after listening to him speak that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent. And then that was the, the focus. Now, that's been the focus now for 50 years. Now, what may happen tomorrow, I don't know. I mean, I may go back and become international sex symbol and go and get it to Hugh Hefner's place. I mean, that may be coming up, but I, I don't think so. That's just a fantasy. But the point is, 
what your life demonstrates is what I'm interested in. And I, I'm amazed at how the second people identify what's really, really important to them, and then they give themselves permission to do two things, one of two things, either structure their life around it and quit fighting it mm. and honor who they are or shift their values. In my breakthrough experience, I, I teach them how to do both. Right. I give them the options to do both because sometimes they want to shift some values. I know people that all of a sudden they're 45 years old and they go, you know what? I have no money. I've got, and I'm, my time is ticking and I'm not going to be able to retire if I don't do something, you know, this kind of stuff. And we shift their values and show them how to start building wealth. And they've never had the value, uh, value on wealth building. They've had value on stuff. Yeah. They got a house with closets and garages filled with crap because they've had a value on stuff, yeah. but they didn't have a value on any asset that gives them passive income. So I can shift value. I can show people how to shift the value and make a difference that direction, or I can ask them to set goals that are aligned with what is really truly important to them. Yeah, Because you're not going to have fulfillment unless there's congruency. And so either set goals that match your values or change your values to match the goals. One of the two. Got you. And I give people those options. Cool. And what about the number of values kind of people have? Like I've just done a very sort of light touch bit of research on it, not even research really, just noticing something that most of the stuff you kind of read, sort of popular media kind of articles and a few things I've looked at, it always seems to be this magic number of talking of around five to six values. Companies tend to have five to six values. I think there was a trend a few years back where they whittled it down to three. But I've often wondered, like, where does this five or six come from? Is there any any validity or any kind of science or psychology behind that? Or is it just a number that's been plucked out of the air? There's no limit on the number of values. Everybody has an unlimited number of values. For instance, uh, you could go into a grocery store and there are some things that you buy regularly that you value a lot and other stuff that you might occasionally buy and then other stuff that you would rarely buy. So you have different values. It's just so low on your values, you're not going to buy it. Mm. So there's an infinite number. They go all the way down to literally at the very bottom that we don't even know the bottom. But what's most important is the ones, the top ones, where they all stand out. And that's, I, I say that usually the very top one is the where you're going to be the, the greatest at. That's the one thing, as Gary Keller says, the one thing that you're going to become great at. My case, it's teaching maybe. Hmm. But uh, right underneath that is researching and writing because I do those together simultaneously. Uh, third is traveling. I've traveled over 20 million miles and I live on a ship that goes around the world. So, I mean, I'm constantly traveling. So my life demonstrates that. So usually by the time you get down to three, four, five, those are the ones that your life demonstrates most that you can rely on. And it might go and extend a little further, seven or eight, but most of the time it's <clears throat> three to five. I call it the three plus or minus two rule. Got you. So that's the ones that you're most reliable on. You can pretty well count on that individual. See, betrayal is never what somebody does to you. Betrayal is what you do to you whenever you project onto them an expectation of them not to live in their highest values and to live in somebody else's or yours. Then you're going to get betrayed every time. If some woman dated me and, and said, well, uh, I'm going to expect him not to teach or research and write. I'm going to expect him to do this and this and this. I'm going to let him down. There's no way I'm going to live up to that. So that's her own creation. That's her own delusion. Hmm. My life is what it is. I, I usually, when I'm <laughs> going on a date, uh, my wife passed away. So when I go on a date, I, I give them a list of who I am. I just let it off the floor. 
day. I just, if you have any expectation other than this, just know I'm going to let you down. Don't waste your time on it. Well, maybe you should create some uh, new new dating website that's all based around yeah, new dating website and get to the point. You yeah. know? But um, because a lot of people think, and I, I'd have to say that men do it also, but women do it quite a bit. They have a fantasy they're going to change their man. And they're going to fix them into the fantasy that they're holding. And their addiction to the fantasy is the punishment until the man figures it out. Of course, they don't always tell the man what it is. They just punish him until he figures it out kind of thing. That's supposed to be a joke. But uh, but that what that does is it leads you know to frustration. It's not going to work. Yeah. Because anytime you project your values onto somebody else, you're going to be betrayed. Mm-hmm. That's simple. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, the futility. Anytime you're self-righteously and narcissistically expect somebody to live in your values other than you, you've got a delusion. Yeah, which will just lead to all sorts of anger, anger and frustration. You're going to have anger. I, I call it anger and aggression, blame and betrayal, criticism and challenge, despair and depression, a desire to exit and escape, frustration and futility, grouchiness and grief, hatred and hurt, and irritability and insanity. That's what's going to happen. So don't project your values onto others and expect them to live in your values because it's not going to happen. This, the next one is also you, while you're infatuated, altruistically, will think you can sacrifice and live in their values. And that's not going to happen either. And I've seen women that were very, very infatuated with guys try to do this for a period of time and it backfires every time. You can't live in their values. Anytime you subordinate to them and try to live in their values, you'll have futility. Anytime you subordinate to them and try to get them to live in your values, you got futility. The wisest thing to do is to ask this question. First, determine both your and their values, what your life demonstrates, what you're committed to. All you do is look. Their life is demonstrating it. You know, if they work out every single morning at four in the morning, their life's showing it. If they're researching every day and teaching every day, your life shows it. If you're if you're loving do yoga and meditation and spiritual practice every day, then your life shows it. Look at what their life demonstrates and ask. By doing the value determination, find out the top three values and ask, how is this individual that I'm now in a relationship with fulfilling those top three values and doing what they're dedicated to, doing what's most meaningful, most inspiring them? How is that helping me fulfill my top three and do each one, the top one to the top one, the second to the second one? And, and I guarantee if you answer those questions, how specific is what they're dedicated to helping you fulfill what you're dedicated to and answer that a hundred times. Mm-hmm. I've actually had people, couples that were ready to just throw in the towel and do that exercise. And they go, I can't believe we we didn't do it. We could have done this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And once they see how that individual being who they are and being authentic is helping them get what they want, they don't need to fix them. People want to be loved for who they are and who they are is an expression of what they value most. And when you don't have to fix them, they feel loved. <laughs> they feel appreciated. And then once you see how they're helping you, there's nothing to fix. And then you turn around and ask, how is my top three values, me fulfilling those and living authentically, how's that helping them do their top three? And then by you answering that a hundred times, you're going to have a whole bunch of new ways of communicating what you want in terms of what they want. And both people are now helping each other get what they want without having to be the other person. People have this fantasy that, well, I need to find somebody that's got the same values. No, that's not going to happen. You're going to, you're going to make, you're going to laugh. I guarantee you, cause you're not going to get that. Yeah. You're going to look for somebody that's similar and then you're going to find out they turn into the opposite to make sure you grew. Cause you don't grow with similarities. That's boring. You need somebody that also gives you the opposite side. So learning how to take their values and finding out how it helps you fulfill yours and vice versa is a door opener for relationships. 
Which I guess is very, very similar to what we spoke about a few minutes back, finding those tasks that you find unfulfilling and can't delegate, finding a way to link them to your values, link your partner's values to, to yours. Yeah, because it, see, if you look down on them and expect them to live in your values, you have careless. Mm. If you look up to them and expect to live in their values, you have careful, you're walking on eggshells. But if you actually have equity where their values are just as valuable as yours, you have caring. That's what keeps the rings on the finger. Caring. Love it. That's what creates sustainable, fair exchange. Every relationship wants fair exchange. And if you do that with your customer and you do that with your employee, and you do that with your spouse, you do that with your kids, you do that with people, learn the art of doing that. That's what the Values Factor book's about. If you learn that art, you have more sustainable relationships and more wealth, and more business, more social power, more health. I could go on. It's going to impact your life and more inspiration because you're not having to fix the world. John, that is a brilliant place to to, to wrap up. I think uh, like massively positive note note to end on. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm conscious of your time. I, I, I could have kept asking you questions for another hour at least. So thank you so much for giving up your time. We'll put all the links in the show notes. People can uh, get in touch with you as well. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. There you have it, folks. That was episode 84 of the show. I really hope you found that episode as interesting and useful as I did. It really was a tour de force around personal values, what they mean, and how we can live and lead a much more effective life as a result of getting clear on our core values. And before you go, folks, I've got something slightly different for you. I absolutely love getting emails from you talking about which episode of the show you really enjoyed, what you took from it and what you are doing different as a result. So much so that I am going to start inviting you, my dear listeners, onto the show at the end to talk a little bit about your favourite episode and what you got from it. So it is my absolute pleasure to tee up the very first of those or these listener soundbites. So let me introduce you to Alison Tarrant. Alison, hello and a very warm welcome to to the show, which is super exciting for me because this is my first ever little listener special listener soundbite. So welcome. Thank you so much for for inviting me. It's um, yeah, really exciting to to be here and and talking to you today. Amazing. So, Alison, who are you, and and what do you do? What fills your time? What do you what do you do for a living? What do we do? So, um, I'm the chief exec of the School Library Association. So, we support anyone involved with school libraries, uh, reading culture, research skills that kind of thing. So that feels quite a lot of my time. And I'm also currently co-chair of the Great School Libraries campaign, which is a campaign that we kind of spearhead. Um, So that feels a bit of my time too. Amazing. And um, I hadn't necessarily planned on asking you this, but we were chatting about it just before we hit record. You were talking about one of the reasons you love what you do. It's that combining of a job and purpose right you tell us uh, tell us a little bit more about that that's really interesting so there's there's a couple of things so one is that I love to learn um it's why I chose to become a school librarian in the first place um because you just have to there are lots of different areas that overlap and you have to keep learning and that's very much the same with being a CEO there are so many different areas 
that you kind of have to grapple with and get your head around and you know you're expected to be the expert um although obviously not not necessary to have all the answers so there's that element that I absolutely love but also being a school librarian I was one before I started as CEO it's such an important job and there are so many different ways that we can kind of impact the experiences that children have at school that isn't talked spoken about very much and you know support staff in schools generally can be quite overlooked and being a school librarian can be quite isolating so actually heading up an organization that kind of wraps their arms around the whole community and says, you know, what you do is important. We're all here together. We can celebrate. We can commiserate. We can, you know, you're part of, of a bigger group of people, bigger community. That's so many of my kind of areas of passion. And it's just fundamentally such an important job. It's It puts me under pressure to do my job well so that they can do their jobs well, because at the end of the day, it's all about the pupils and the experiences that they're having. Yeah, I'm sitting here kind of really, really smiling listening to you talk. It's a lovely story that sort of um, nourishes the soul, I think, listening <laughs> to somebody with that sort of um, passion and sense of purpose in what they do. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky and very fortunate to be in the role and, and have had the experiences that kind of that got me here. So, yeah, it's good. And you were saying you have um, quite a long commute a couple of days a week, which is when you tend to, uh, to listen to the podcast. So what, which are some of the episodes that have really stood out for you and some of the, the learnings you've taken from them? So my my commute, when I commute to the office, is two hours there and two hours back. So there's a lot of amazing podcast audiobook time, which I relish. And they're one of the things about going from school librarian to CEO over a weekend is that there is quite a lot to learn. So yeah, even, sure. <laughs> to put it lightly. So, you know, even a couple of years on, I'm still really kind of developing as myself as a leader. And it's something that I really want to be a kind of ongoing journey. So there's rarely, if ever, an episode where I don't take something from it. But I think the ones around Melanie, I'm not sure how to say her name, Chevalier, the time to think one really hit home because, you know, having been a school librarian, we like run an advice line and we run training and it means I've got all the knowledge to kind of contribute to those, but actually pulling back from that to, to focus on the business rather than in the business, you know, that was quite an important one. The one with Jane Finette and the Brendan Pavey one. Yeah. James Ray one I just listened to recently and that that element of resilience, you know, because it's not been the easiest thing. It's not necessarily something I'd recommend. Hearing people talk about their resilience and situations they've gone through was really nice. And the Richard Farrow one I listened to recently talking about strategy and execution. We're just in our first year of a new five-year strategy. So that one was quite timely. But I think actually the most empowering episode was um, Sharon MacArthur's um, talking about the menopause. You know, as a a woman in my mid-30s, it's not something I'd spoken about before, kind of in a personal context. And, you know, when I come across information about it, I was kind of just like, oh, I've got, I've got years. I don't need to think about that now. Um, so actually kind of listening to someone talk about it from a business perspective was really interesting and really kind of opened the door. And actually, you know, I went away and I had different conversations with different people, both in the association and and personally about, you know, what it kind of 
the challenges it represents and you know spoke to my HR company and I was like you know are we going to have a menopause policy on this is this something we could develop I think that one probably landed in the in the biggest way yeah I mean I I loved that episode myself actually with with Sharon it was my um Amanda my amazing PA who connected me with with Sharon and initially I I wasn't sure kind of how it would would fit with the show which is really my naivety I think rather than anything else but I'm I'm so glad Amanda connected us and we had her on the show like not only was she great to listen to and it was very easy conversation really enjoyable but just such an important topic right that there's is still like so little little awareness around even despite some of the kind of work that people like Davina McCall are doing on it so yeah it was a it was a cracking episode yeah and I think that really came across and I think her you know her way of approaching it is just so open she you know she removes all of that kind of awkwardness about it and and yeah so it yeah it was just fantastic yeah and is there something that stands out for you in terms of something you've done differently as a result of listening to some of the guests on the show? There are loads of things that I have changed or I've tweaked just, you know, as as you go, just from like little things like adding particular elements to the operational plan. When we're talking about like there was an episode talking about collective responsibility and like the Ford strategy of making everyone in the business responsible for kind of income and growth to building in more thinking time and more planning time but I think the biggest kind of change is probably just me I think that collectively the episodes have really allowed me to kind of grow as a leader and build my confidence remove some of the imposter syndrome because everyone's so open and it it's just amazing to know that you know the challenges that I'm facing that probably are maybe more accentuated because of my career journey everyone else is going through them too and and it's like that that thing of it can be quite isolating so feeling like you know there is this community out there who who are grappling with the same things and it is an ongoing journey and there's not necessarily going to be a point where I'm like yeah that's done I'm now a leader you know and so yeah and there are the different approaching kind of new new situations for me with someone else's experience I think you've now I think you've nailed it Alison I think one of the things we wrestle with as humans a lot is like want to know am I normal especially am I normal as a leader do other leaders have these have these fears and feelings and imposter syndrome and that's been one of the big themes for for me actually like 80 odd episodes in so many leaders talk about imposter syndrome worrying if they're getting it right worrying if they're doing a good job and it just makes us all feel better I think that we're we're all the same yeah and also you know all the leaders that that you've spoken to are doing brilliant things and I wonder if actually the worry about are we doing this right is what drives us to do it better because we just continue, you know, it's that growth mindset, isn't it? Of, you know, continuing to learn and improve and tweak and and progressing. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what about another podcast re- recommendation? You said you relish your your commute in some ways and the opportunity to learn. What what else do you tune into? 
Now, do you listen to a lot of audiobooks as well, um, both kind of business focused and, and not? Um, but in terms of podcasts, there are two that I listen to a lot. Um, so one is The Secret Diary of a CEO by yeah. Stephen Bartlett, which, yeah, I've been listening to since like he was recording it in his under his stairs at 3am. Yeah, and yeah. now it's like this big YouTube yeah so yeah that's been really interesting and then my other one is a guilty feminist right which is a fantastic mix of kind of comedy and politics and has really kind of helped me expand my thinking in terms of being inclusive and again kind of listen to that one across its kind of journey it's really grown and seeing the way that they're you know continually changing and but approaching everything with like such like the comedy comes first almost and they have this section called i'm a feminist but where everyone contributes the thoughts that they have that kind of um they catch themselves thinking and go oh that's not very feminist <laughs> yeah so um those are those are my go-tos fantastic Alison, you've just topped up my energy reserve. It's been brilliant <laughs> kind of list, um, listening to you speak and chatting to you as the first ever sort of listener soundbite. I hope it's the first of many. So thank you so much for listening and thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast and, and chat to, to me and all of our thousands of listeners for a few minutes. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, and yeah, I hope you continue with the podcast for a long, long time to come. If you enjoyed listening to Alison there, folks, and you'd like to come on the show yourself, then I'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email to chat at ben-morton.com. Let me know which episode you love, what you've done differently as a result. And me or my team will get back in touch and see if we can set up a short call to get you on the show as well. So that's nearly it for this episode, folks. As always, if you are getting value from the show, I would be so, so grateful if you could take just a couple of minutes to rate, review and subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. And even better than that would be if you could share a link to the show out with your friends and colleagues. I say this all the time, but it really does enable us to keep bringing you more and more episodes of the show with amazing leaders and subject matter experts. That's it for this week. Until next time, lead on.